Morning, everyone. Thank you, Patrick and Gordon and Peter and James and Liam and Jamie for leading us this morning. Uh, and thank you for all those words and phrases that you shared with me last week on your way out uh, or via text or email. They really were great. They were varied and they were quite interesting. Uh, so if you can't access a Bible, could you please turn back to Revelation 1? And as you do that, let me ask you a question, and here it is. Whenever you think of Jesus, as we've been doing this morning, whenever you think of Jesus or about Jesus, what kind of thoughts and images come to mind? How do you picture Jesus? We all do it to a certain extent, and, and that's okay, it's understandable. I don't know, do you imagine him reclining at that table as we were thinking about this morning before we took communion? Patrick read about how Jesus was reclining at that table. And just before that, he, he knelt down, he washed the disciples' feet. Is that how you imagine Jesus? Do you imagine him sitting, teaching, or taking a little child into his arms and praying for them and blessing them? Or do you imagine him calming the wind and the waves? Do you imagine him reclining at another table, all the dinner guests watching him as somebody comes in and pours perfume over him? How do you see Jesus? Well, today we're going to get to imagine another very dramatic, striking, and to be honest, a really different and almost unusual image of Jesus. It's the first of seven images of Jesus that we're going to encounter in Revelation. Remember, Revelation is about Jesus. I, I went to great lengths last week to stress that. It is a letter. It is an apocalypse, an unveiling, a revealing, and it is a prophecy, but it's all about Jesus. And the reason that we are reading it as a church, the reason for reading it is to know Christ better and to follow him better. We read Revelation to be formed and transformed, not merely informed. Of course, there's lots in here that grabs our attention, that sends our heads spinning, that stimulates discussion and debate, but right up front and throughout these next however many weeks we're in this, the focus, the priority, the constant takeaway has got to be Jesus. And a fresh vision of who he is, what he has done, and what he is doing. Jesus be the center. That is one of my main prayers for this series. Be front and center, Jesus, of our imaginations, of our hearts, of our lives, of our church, of our world. But a key challenge is not just to expand or to refresh our vision or our understanding of a truly cosmic Jesus. The critical issue is how do we respond to that Jesus? Right here, right now, and then for the rest of our lives. And as we're about to see this morning, there really is only one appropriate, wise, and required response. So have a look at chapter one with me, picking up from where we left off at verse 10. Here's how it begins. I, John. So who is this John? 
Is it the beloved disciple? Is it the apostle John, the one who wrote the fourth gospel, who probably wrote the three letters we did, think of two of them in the summer? Is it him who would be about 80 years old by now? Well, it could be. Lots of people think it is, but we honestly cannot be absolutely sure it is. Although what we do know about this John is made explicit for us in the text, and that's what I want to stick with. What he says about himself, where we actually find him, and why we find him there tells us so much about this John. And so he says, I, John, your brother, your companion in the suffering in the kingdom and patient endurance that is ours in Jesus. Here's the point. John is one of them. He's just one of them. He's a fellow believer. He belongs to the same family as all those he's writing to belongs. He's their brother. He's their friend. He's their companion. He's their partner. But notice, he's their friend, companion, brother in Jesus. It's one of the most important phrases in the whole of the New Testament. It's what identifies a Christian, somebody who is in Jesus, who is in Christ. John was. His readers, his first readers were. The question is, is that our prime identity. Who am I? I'm in Jesus. Well, John is. But there's more to this identification with his readers because he's not just one of them in Jesus, full stop. No, he's one of them in three things. One of them in their suffering, one of them in the kingdom, and one of them in patient endurance. So John gets what his readers are going through. He understands where they're at. And as a key figure within the church at that time, this would have meant a lot to this wider Christian community. This guy who's writing to us, he's not just one of us, but he empathizes with us. He identifies with us. He shares in our suffering. And they were suffering for their faith. He shares in the kingdom. We are a kingdom of priests, as it said earlier in the chapter. He's one of us but he also shares in our patient endurance. He's still hanging in there. But what else do we discover about him? Well, he's on Patmos, which is a prison island, Roman Empire's equivalent of Alcatraz. And the reason he's there, or the two reasons he's there, are stated in verse 9. He's there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John, this John is someone who communicates God's word to others. Plus, he's someone who bears witness to Jesus. And in that culture, in that context, that's going to get you into a pile of trouble. And it has got this John into a pile of trouble. And so he's been shipped off. And then the final thing we can say with confidence about this John is that he's a true worshiper. Look at verse 10. It says it's the Lord's day, and where is he? He's lost in wonder, love, and praise. He's worshiping in the Spirit or in Spirit. Not entirely sure exactly what that phrase is about. But he's worshiping in the Spirit or in Spirit. In other words, it's real. It's from his heart. It's genuine. It's true. And so there's a snapshot of this John. He's a fellow believer. He's a fellow sufferer. He's a faithful witness for Jesus and for the faith, and he's a true worshiper. But as he worships, and this I find really interesting, it's from that place and it's from that that he hears and that he sees, and that he receives instruction. And without making too great a leap in terms of application, I do think there's something in this about us being here at worship. 
that as we gather as Christians to worship in the Spirit, in spirit, then we are in that place, we are in that posture where we can hear from God. We can see afresh and we can receive instructions from our Father. Never neglect the place and attitude of worship. So let's read what John heard and what he saw and what he writes down as the unveiling, as the revealing commences, as the curtain gets pulled back, as John catches a glimpse of reality, as he discovers things are not what they seem, or to be more accurate, things are not only as they seem. And so if you're able and willing, and I'm aware of time, I know that, but if you're able and willing, please stand for the public reading of God's Word via Jesus, via an angel, via John to the church. And please, let your imaginations run wild. Let's stand together. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches that have listed here. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice sounded like the rush of water. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me. And he said, don't be afraid. Because I'm the first and I'm the last. I'm the living one I was dead. And look, I'm alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Have a seat. There is a lot of likes in there, and I don't mean the kind that we immediately think of nowadays. And I will come back to that. But as he is worshiping, John hears a loud voice behind him. And it's a voice like a trumpet. And so it's unmissable. And this voice tells him to write down what he sees. Not what he hears, but what he sees. So John is being primed for an assault on his sense of sight. And then he is to send what he sees in writing to seven named churches, which is effectively what we have got in the last book letter, apocalypse, prophecy of the Bible. By the way, one of the really important questions to ask as we read this letter together is this. What does John see next? Not what happens next. What does John see next? That's a top tip for reading Revelation, and I will come back to that. So what does John see first, as it turns out? Well, he needs to turn around to see it, which is really interesting because clearly it means it's not a voice in his head. He needs to shift his position. This is actually happening. It turns out he sees someone. But before he sees them, he sees seven golden lampstands, verse 12. Now, we don't have to enter the realm of conjecture 
or guesswork regarding what are these seven life-giving objects? Because in verse 20, it says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, that kind of makes sense. Because, and I know a lot of this flows from Old Testament imagery about that seven-pronged lampstand that was in the tabernacle and then the temple. But the church in the New Testament, the people of faith, the body of Christ, are told by Jesus himself, listen, guys, you are now the light of the world. You are salt, yes, but you are now the light of the world. So go shine. This is who you are. This is your identity. So the seven golden lampstands of the seven churches, fair enough. But as John looks and he sees these seven lampstands representing the seven churches, he does see that someone is among the lampstands. Now, he's not above the lampstands. He's not beyond the lampstands. He's not around the lampstands. He's among them. It's present. He's with. He's close. And that someone is like a son of man. Now, as I said last week, the allusions to and the connections with the Old Testament in Revelation are endless. They're all over the place. And here it's clear that John is drawn from a vision that God gave Daniel regarding the coming promised one. Here's just a snippet from that vision that Daniel got. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days, which is God, and was led into his presence. So what John sees, and he knows this, what John sees is Jesus, the promised one, who now lives and moves among his churches then and now. This is one of the reasons why as we read on, particularly as we get to chapters two and three, Jesus is able to say, I know. I am among you. He is among us here this morning, Windsor Baptist. And he knows your struggles. He knows how you feel this morning. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going well. He knows where you're messing up. And so as we come to chapters two and three, every single time he says something to church, he says, I know. Why? Because I'm among. I'm with you. Nothing's changed. And so we do need to be still for the presence of the Holy One is here. And as John continues to look, he starts describing the central figure and he uses and he reaches for all kinds of pictures and imagery to describe or to convey the one who transcends all images. And again, he draws on ideas from the Old Testament and beyond. And the first thing that John noticed, and it's often the first thing we notice about someone, isn't it? It's the way they're dressed. And although we probably wouldn't go as far to say you are what you wear, it is true that what we wear does make some kind of statement about who we are. And as John observes this particular figure, this one like a son of man who he knows is Jesus, he sees that he's wearing a long robe that goes right down to his feet and there's a golden sash across his chest and the symbolism is rich and it was rich. And those reading this letter for the first time would have got this immediately. 
Because this robe was either a priest's robe or it was a king's robe. And in the case of Jesus, it was a graphic reminder that he is both. He is a go-between. He is a mediator. He brings God to people. He brings people to God. He's a bridge builder. Plus, he is now the one who is enthroned with all authority in heaven and earth. So Jesus is, by what he wears, John knows, this is a priest and a king. And see that sash across the chest? As opposed to being round his waist, that communicates something. Because if it had been worn round his waist, that would reveal that he was someone preparing for or was at work. Whereas when it's worn across the chest, it reveals that someone has accomplished the task. They've got the job done. And again, it was a sign that it is finished. The high priestly work of Jesus had been completed. His once and for all final sacrifice had been offered. And so what? We can be free. We can be forgiven. But the visual assault isn't over. He doesn't just notice what this figure's wearing, what Jesus is wearing, but he sees more. And this is where all these likes increase. John finds it hard to capture within the confines of human language what what he wants to say. And so he says, listen, his hair is like, and his feet are like, and his eyes are like, and his voice is like. And before we unpack this a bit further, it's probably worth saying that we're not dealing with exactly the way Jesus looks right now. Or this is the way Jesus looks all the time. Jesus looks like Jesus. This is a vision that captures and represents and helps us to understand and expand our understanding of who Jesus is. I mean, if Revelation 1, 13 to 16 that we have just read is describing what Jesus is literally like right now, then we're going to have a problem when we get to the second image that John sees of Jesus in chapter 5. Because in that image, when John looks, what does he see? He sees Jesus, the lamb, as if slain with seven horns and seven eyes. So does that second image contradict this first image? Is Jesus not literally like this, but he's literally like that? No. This is where we get into all kinds of bother with this particular letter, apocalypse, and prophecy. This is a different image, a different insight, which just reveals more of the beauty and brilliance of who Jesus is. And so back to today's first image out of the seven. His head and his hair are white like wool, as white as snow. And again, we're back to Daniel 7. We're in the lion tamer's vision. He sees the ancient of days, which is God, as I said earlier. And when he looks at the ancient of days, he looks at him and discovers the ancient of days, which is God. He's got hair like wool in my vision. I watched, this is Daniel speaking. As thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days, that's God, sat down to judge. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair like purest wool. And so in Revelation 1, John is making the point directly or indirectly, you choose, that the one who is like a son of man has got hair like wool. Therefore, what John is saying, this is God. This is God. And that was an incredible revelation for his first readers. So the vision intensifies because as John looks, he then sees your eyes are like blazing fire. They miss nothing. There's a purifying aspect to the look of Jesus. He sees you this morning as you really are. This was so important for these first Christians to know this. He sees you this morning as you really are. 
As someone has said, he doesn't just look at you, he looks through you, not meaning that he ignores you as if you aren't there, but he knows you inside out. He sees everything. His eyes were like blazing fire. That also reveals and explains why he can judge. He sees it all. Then John looks down. And he sees that his feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. And we're back to Daniel again only later on in his vision. Where Daniel is given a glimpse of the anointed one. And in Daniel's vision he notes that his feet are like polished bronze. And part of that vision communicates that the person that's coming, his kingdom is going to be strong and secure and steady. Other earthly rulers and kingdoms have got feet like iron and clay, but not this one. This one's kingdom will come and it will last forever. His rule and his reign will never end. And again, for people who are being hammered by another king and another kingdom, by Domitian, And the Roman Empire, this is music to their ears. His feet are like bronze. He's unmovable, steady. This kingdom's never going to end. This Roman one will and did. Four more quick details. His voice. It's like the sound of rushing waters. It's powerful. It's unstoppable. It's life-giving. It's thirst-quenching. It's refreshing And the voice of Jesus is all of the above and more. And then John looks and he sees that this figure is like a son of man. He's holding something in his right hand. Seven stars. Seven, as we'll discover, and as I said last week, and you know it's a sign of completeness. And therefore, some people think this is a reference to the fact that he holds every star in his hands, that he's got the whole world in his hands that he is Lord of the cosmos, that he holds the universe together, which he does. And although all of that is true, verse 20 once again reveals the explicit answer as to what these seven stars are. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, what does that mean? Who are they? Well, we'll discover what they are when we get to chapter two tonight. The next image, are you still with me? Where is 10-2, gonna wind this up really quick. Are you still with me? Yeah. The next image is rather shocking. I don't know how you picture this. But out of his mouth comes a sharp, double-edged sword, which echoes Hebrews 4, 12, 13, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It extends most thoughts and desires. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus speaks the word of God. Jesus cuts through all the nonsense, all the lies, all the power plays, all the empty words, all the posturing, all the negativity. Because as Peter made really clear when he discovered, Jesus, you're the one that holds the words of eternal life. You're the one we need to listen to. You speak truth. And finally, the final aspect of this first vision, John looks up and he sees that his face 
is like the sun in all its brilliance. Gordon made reference to this as he was referring to Claire and David. We do it often at dedications. Quote, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. John felt the heat of that. The glorified Christ is shining on you right now. Do you feel that heat as opposed to the rest of the heat that's in this building? And with that image of Jesus consuming John, his sight has been assaulted. It's imprinting itself upon his mind and upon his heart. And here's the question. How's he going to respond? And how are you going to respond? Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I wonder sometimes if I become too familiar with Jesus. Have I become too casual in his presence? Do I just simply go through the motions? Tonight we're going to be thinking about this whole idea of have we lost our first love? I wonder sometimes, have I? And therefore this reminder of John's vision of a cosmic Jesus in all its attention-grabbing visual imagery is exactly what I need to reset and restore my worship and my surrender. And I'm going to ask the guys to come back now and we're going to close with this song. But we're going to sing in a wee second, we bow down and confess that Jesus, you are Lord in this place and you are all that I need. And I'm going to invite us to do something and I know this is going to be a bit unusual. I recognize that, accept that, and I apologize for it in advance. If we need a fresh vision of who Jesus is, and not just who he is and what he looked, but what he has done for us and what he is doing for us and who he means to each one of us. Then, as we sing this song, I'm going to invite you to consider kneeling or just staying seated as opposed to standing. I love what happens next in this vision. Because the hand that holds the seven stars, that holds the seven angels of the churches, reaches out and touches John as he's lying there as though dead. You see, the personal touch of Jesus is breathtaking. And he doesn't just reach out and touch John, he then speaks to John. He says, John, don't be afraid. And I don't know what scares you this morning. I don't know what you've come here this morning afraid of. But as we sing this song, as we bow down and as we confess that he is Lord in this place, I want you to know that Jesus is reaching out the person he touched you and say to you, don't be afraid. I am, as he goes on to say, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. But now I hold the keys to life in Hades. 
Fear is a powerful force. Death is an even more powerful force. But Jesus has defeated it. And because Jesus has defeated it, we can have hope. And we can have certainty regarding today and tomorrow. So, we bow down and confess.